People of the world, hello and welcome to The Brothers Talk with your hosts, Rod, Scott, and Norm, where our purpose is a simple one. Tune into our weekly podcast each Friday wherever you listen to your favorite programs or on this website to hear us, three black, unfiltered African-American men with no strings attached, giving voice as the most feared, most misunderstood, and most rarely heard from segment of the population on topics of interest to us for education, enlightenment, and entertainment. To reach us with your comments, questions, and suggestions, we're at The Brothers Talk on Twitter, The Brothers Talk on Instagram, the Facebook group of the same name, and if you care to share in more detail, hit us up at the email address, thebrotherstalk at gmail.com. Also, stay tuned for details about our upcoming news and perspective show on Millennium TV's M24 streaming news station. And we're back on the Brothers Talk. Always happy for all the feedback that we get, all of the listeners who are sharing their information and spreading the word about this podcast that is for us, directed by us, and shared for our benefit. So this week, we are once again going to have a special broadcast to talk about some extremely important issues that are related to our community. But as always, let me bring in my co-host, Scott and Norm, for this week's greeting. Hey, family. Thanks for continuing to listen. And we want to thank you for, for your continued support. And I'd like to back that up by saying hello to the family out there. And remember, Black on Black love. This week, our focus on what we're calling Blackonomics, because we fully understand that economics is the principle on which this nation operates. Economics for our discussion relating to our community is understood as the production, consumption, and transfer of wealth in these United States. In other words, the condition of a region or a group as regards material prosperity, which is the backbone of this great nation. And this week we have a couple of very special guests who are going to share with us because they are intimately and intricately involved in this topic. First up, we have Dr. Rodney Andrews, who's an associate professor of economics at the University of Texas at Dallas, director of the Texas Schools Project. He's a Harvard University Robert Wood Johnson Foundation scholar, assistant professor of economics in the School of Economic and his areas of expertise are economics of education, labor economics, public finance, and applied microeconomics. While Dr. Andrews has investigated a range of topics, including health policy, his recent focus is on the economics of education and more specifically, the topics of college paths, return to college quality, and pre-K effects on student achievement. Dr. Andrews received his PhD in economics from the University of Michigan. And along with him, we have Dr. Dr. Marcus Martin, who is the founder and CEO of 2M Research. He's responsible for 2M's corporate vision, strategic growth, and talent acquisition. He's a former faculty member at the University of Oklahoma. He received his PhD in sociology and applied statistics from Howard University and his Master of Public Health from the University of North Texas Health Science Center School for Public Health. Dr. Martin also has a Master of Arts in Criminal Justice from the University of Louisiana at Moreau. Prior to founding to him, Dr. Martin served as the founding director of the J. McDonnell Williams Institute, a Texas-based public policy institute focusing on reducing economic, education, and health disparities in minority communities. He also served as a senior biostatistician for the Tarrant County, Texas Public Health Department, where he was instrumental in leading research on infant mortality, health disparities, maternal health, and chronic diseases, and in providing biostatistical support to the county's infectious disease epidemiology division. Brothers, welcome aboard to the Brothers Talk, and feel free to start sharing your thoughts around this topic because we recognize that 
economics has always been the backbone of its focus, but we also recognize that oftentimes that economy has been built on our backs. And so we have to now figure out how we're going to stop being the burden bearers and get an opportunity to actually participate in the post-coronavirus economy of the United States. So what are your thoughts? Well, thanks for having us, first of all. Appreciate the introduction. So let's get to it. What are you seeing post-coronavirus? And even if you want to start by talking about some of the things that led us to be where we are in this current environment, uh, what do you see are some of the solutions and some of the prospects that we have coming out of this pandemic? I think what we've um, observed is uh, some of the structural inequities for Black people have been exacerbated with the coronavirus and uh, with, with COVID-19. If you, if you think about where Black people are positioned in the economy, where we live, a lot of us participate in the service sector, and that involves a lot of interpersonal contact. And you, you think about the way that we transport ourselves to work, make use of public transportation. Given how easily transmitted the virus is, it, it stands to reason from the way that we interact in the economy that we were going to be a bit more vulnerable. And given that there isn't a much, given that we don't have a lot of wealth um, as a people, we need to work. And the majority you know, of our money is going to come from labor. And so I think part of it is we're realizing that many Black people couldn't afford not to work. And so I think things get really interesting once this effort to reopen fully catches on and these extended and magnified unemployment benefits uh, dry up. And this, uh, you know, the, the PPP program, once that ends, I, I think then these vulnerabilities that I discussed are going to be magnified even more. And so, Rodney, what do you see in that catch-22 that is the current situation with our community of we really didn't receive a lot of those benefits in the first place, and therefore the choice has to be made between do I endanger my life or do I starve? I think to me it, it indicates you can't disentangle the health problem from the, the economic problem, right? And, and the discussion to me, at least the federal discussion is, you know, we have to get the economy started. And I'm like, well, that's the virus, right? Like, like we need to solve this public health problem. And then that puts African-Americans in a position, in a position to contribute, in a position, uh, you know, to work and to also sort of take risk. And I think, you know, what it's done is really expose those vulnerabilities that I think we all have recognized that have always been there. In the lead up to today's conversation, you had some interesting thoughts about how health impacts the overall process, so much so that we needed to almost take a step back and recognize that if we do not concentrate on the health and some of the challenges that Rodney just spoke about, then in essence, it's almost a moot point to try to talk about economics, because if we are not healthy enough to be a part of that process, so can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, no, certainly. I think that uh, Rodney is correct on all of that. Of course, in particular, if you've got uh, bad health outcomes, premature death, et cetera, I mean, it has a generational impact in terms of loss of lifetime earnings, transferring wealth, all of those things, et cetera, which we, of course, have struggled with for many, many years. And I think we're seeing COVID-19 sort of exacerbate or bring those things to, to light. So I think it's got to be a dual effort in the way that we are trying to address uh, many of these issues uh, within our community. I got a question for, for, for both of you guys also. It's concerning, how is it that, how do you see why Black folks 
Rodney mentioned not having a lot of wealth from the get-go. So why are we in that position still? And how do you see us coming out of that disposition of not having a lot of wealth as opposed to what's going to happen with uh, COVID-19? That's a, that's a podcast unto itself with regards to the, the intergenerational wealth. I think if you look at, at least, and I'll try to be brief, a lot of the policies that allowed for wealth building you know, you think about the GI Bill, you think about sort of access to home loans. A lot of those programs that were innovated in the middle of the 20th century explicitly excluded Blacks, right? And so, you know, maybe you couldn't take advantage of the GI Bill. Maybe you couldn't buy a home. And so access to credit, the ability to borrow, the majority of most people's wealth is basically their home. And so if you can't buy a home, and or if you could buy a home, you couldn't buy a home in a place where the value would appreciate and you know you didn't have educational opportunities as well you know that makes it difficult then to take that human capital generate earnings turn that into wealth and then to pass that on intergenerationally and so you know a, a lot of interesting research has, has taken place talking about the factors that preclude the generation of wealth and also point out differences in how wealth is transmitted depending on where you are or where you were born so I think being undercapitalized in this situation um, where you couldn't afford to say, you know what, I'm not going to work for three months. I'm going to social distance and then to have the means to make sure that your needs are met. If you don't have wealth, you know, that becomes more difficult. Or if you are working in a job uh, where you can't necessarily work from home. Right. And so I think, you know, those factors in conjunction make us, you know, more vulnerable. And in terms of, of how do we come out of it, I think structural problems uh, require structural solutions. And that in combination, structural solutions in combination with our own individual efforts, you know, are, are the only way to sort of move forward when you're dealing with not a singular issue, right? I think what we've realized now is, you know, we have conversations about economics and we have conversations about health, you know, but as, uh, you know, as my, my friend Marcus said, those things intersect. Right. Like, you know, like you want to be healthy enough, you know, to work long enough to generate that wealth. Wouldn't owning our own institutions like banks be like the, the main source to changing that? that? That'd be one component of it. I mean, of course, life insurance and everything else would be another component. And of course, I'd say the biggest thing is a lot of the work that Rodney's doing around education. It's a fact that, you know, you take away a person's age, then their education uh, has the biggest impact on their overall health and well-being and longevity. and and all of those things. So I think that's one component of it, but I think we have to try to find a way to sustain ourselves through these various methods of self-sufficiency. Um, once again, that can be built over time to withstand this and, and other sorts of crisis. And that, this is one of the reasons I think Rodney being on, on the chat in terms of being you know, a trained economist and bringing some perspective on effective policy uh, is important because once again, I think that when people talk about these issues, they talk about them from an anti-historical perspective. If you look at the GI Bill, being able to buy a home, studies show that many of the black soldiers that came from the Second War back into the country were excluded from many of those things that once again would have created some of this generational wealth for our community. Marcus, you dropped something on us the other day that we were surprised by because obviously we are not from that industry, but you shared something about the ability of convicted felon to buy in insurance. Can you talk a little bit about that more for our listeners? Yeah, well, it's very common. Uh, well, two things. Number one, it's very common uh, for insurance companies 
to exclude or have an exclusionary rule that if you're a convicted felon, you cannot uh, obtain life insurance. The other thing, and Rodney may can attest to this, unfortunately, so many people in our community are paying for what they call uh, debit life insurance or barrier policy, uh, which is typically five, ten thousand $10,000. But if you compare the price of those barrier policies to what you could get as a 19-year-old, 20 or 30-year-old on a traditional life insurance uh, market, those things are extremely expensive. And once again, there, there's nothing that's going to lead to generational transformational wealth with respect to a barrier policy. So I think it, it needs to be uh, a tool in our arsenal of how we not only better our own families, but better our community. Uh, and of course, the great thing about the life insurance, you know, it's tax-free. Um, I think part of our issue is that we typically die and when we die, we don't cost anybody anything. Yeah. And of course, we are certainly uh, more than cognizant of the fact that with our making up so large a portion of the prison population, then if they're being excluded as well from being able to buy those policies, then that's just one more detriment to our being able to have generational wealth that we can transfer from one generation to the next. Yeah, and I'll let Rodney follow on, but I think this is where Rodney was alluding to some of these sort of systemic institutional issues. It is also the case that the coronavirus is rampant in our incarcerated populations as well. Um, and, and I think that's something you know that should be noted. I think sort of a commonality between what Marcus is saying, what I'm saying is that these, these issues that we're talking about are, are multidimensional. There are many factors. And so there is no silver bullet. There is no one single action that we can take that's going to alleviate these problems. I think problems of this magnitude require multiple programs, multiple individual efforts um, in, in order to affect a big problem, a big multidimensional problem is going to require multiple efforts. And so I think, you know, we're thinking, we tend to think of in terms of policy as what's that single thing that you could do? And I'm like, there is no single thing, right? Like, you know, there are health issues, there are job issues, there are educational issues. Those things are interrelated to affect life outcomes. And so we need multidimensional policies to deal with the multidimensional problem. So what I'm hearing here is, listening to this conversation, in this post-pandemic era, if I'm looking to generate wealth and generational wealth, one of the things that I can do, well, some of the things I can do is, first of all, I got to make sure that I'm, I'm healthy. You got to take care of my health. Secondly, I might want to take a look at the role that buying the insurance and how much insurance I should buy if I want to help my, my folks, kind of say, so to speak, come up. So we talked about those things. What role do you think using IT, I see a lot of wealth has been generated using the internet and other forms of IT, and we haven't seemed to be able to tap into that. Well, I, I think there's a, there's certainly, Blacks tend to be underrepresented in STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics fields. Certainly tend to be underrepresented in, you know, in places like Silicon Valley, you know, or the biotech corridor um, in Boston, Massachusetts. And, and it's also clear that IT is sort of cha maybe changing the structure of how uh, work is done. And right. so I, I think we want to recognize that and also to recognize that this COVID has introduced a big structural change in the economy. And I think you're going to see corporations make changes that they would have wanted to make anyway. And and so I think we need to be, I, I, think, I think you're going to see a change in the airline industry, right? I, I think mm -hmm. the way that they essentially made money was we're going to pack a bunch of people in this sardine can and we're going to throw it in the air. 
I think you should expect flights to be more sparsely populated and to be more expensive. You know, I think uh, we, 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 but we do recognize that things like transportation and logistics are going to be, are, are important. And, and to what extent are we participating in those industries? And Mark has smartly mentioned education, life insurance, but let's not ignore investment, you know, in, in, in the equity market, but also, you know, in the market for debt. Mm-hmm. Because everyone's noting, hey, man, the, the stock market is down, but over time, it has consistently delivered positive returns. But that, that idea of I'm going to invest now and then reap the rewards later, the health piece means that you're going to be around to reap the returns from your investment, right? right. And so, and the other thing, and then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be quiet, is we, we've talked about wealth, right? We've talked about generating wealth. And to me, like, you need the ability to fail if you want to be wealthy. If you, if you look at sort of the stories of like, sort of the mm-hmm. Bill Gates and the, right. you know, the Steve Jobs of the world, right? They weren't diversifying at the time. They made a concentrated bet on this thing. Right. And, and then when you sort of read their stories, they're like, you know, I failed a bunch of times. But the, the, the benefit that they had is that they could fail and it not be horrific and not ruin their lives. You know, I, I open mm-hmm. up a business, you know, I make this opportunity. It doesn't work out. That doesn't mean that I'm going to starve. And so, right. you know, I think Black people, we're undercapitalized. That means that you, right. you, you can't really take that opportunity to invest and in, in, in something that's high risk, high reward, because you, you only need to be right one time to be wealthy. Right. I want to add two things. Um, we have to find a way to take the non-traditional assets in our community to help with some of this undercapitalization that will allow for the creation and the promotion of healthy black businesses, number one. Number two, and I think this is important, Rodney, I remember reading several years ago an, an economist who had a book called The Fourth Great Awakening. And the premise was that this is the fourth time in human history where, uh, because of the change in work structure, et cetera, that there's massive amounts of free time, okay? And so often what you'll find in upper-class communities is that ability to use that free time to, to do something creative. And so I would advocate that often, you know, when, when our kids are um, in school, high school, et cetera, and they're having to work part-time at the Sonics or the McDonald's, um, that actually prevents them, because there's just so many hours in a day, from having that time and uh, that creative space that allow for the creation of some of these innovative ventures that we see that have popped up from, from time to time. And I think we need to have a goal of having more of our kids, uh, especially as they're younger, coming through high school, et cetera, uh, not so much work. But when that free time is created for them to use that for the innovative thought, all of those things, et cetera, uh, because those are where the disruptors are and those are where the game changes are uh, that once again can create the next Facebook or the next Google, et cetera. You know, but if you're stretched 40 hours, right, and you're working overtime and going to school, then you really don't have time for that. Yeah, I, that's a great point. And I think the other piece of that also talks about those who are willing to invest so that some of these young people and certainly some of the others who are in their middle age but still have those dreams and desires to really work on inventions or work on the next great thing, that they can have the kind of capital behind them that will allow them to stay out there on the front lines without having the pull that we recognize other ethnic groups don't have because they have a financial structure that will 
continue to support them as they, they strive to try to make it. In the uh, remaining time, I want to toss out the topic of reparations because we know that we've got a big election coming up in November. And on the Democratic side in particular, we talked last week about Joe Biden needing the black vote to win that election. And obviously, we want him to win. And we want that to be a mission one is getting rid of the current White House occupant. But at the same time, we were discussing how we need to leverage our vote in a way that gets the kind of commitment from him that other ethnic and other special interest groups get. And so I'd like for you to share a little bit of your thoughts around reparations, because we see reparations not as the the univision of just getting a check, but that it addresses, I, I appreciate specifically what you said, Rodney, about the fact that it's a multifunctional answer that we have to have. And from my vantage point, reparations should be touted as something that addresses wealth, addresses education, addresses health, addresses access to real estate, all of those things. So what are you guys' thoughts about reparations as something that could be leveraged into the Democratic platform? Uh, I can think of a couple of economists in particular. Derek Hamilton, um, Mm -hmm. director of the Kirwan Center at The Ohio State University, and Sandy Darity at Duke University. I think both of those scholars um, who who are brothers have done a lot of work making the case for reparations. And, you know, Derek Hamilton has put forth this idea of uh, baby bonds, where essentially each child would be staked with like, you know, a bond worth $25,000 or so that they could access. Um, Sandy Darity has done some work along with uh, Mia Frank in terms of trying to estimate the magnitude of, of, of how, of, in terms of reparations, what, how do we arrive at a number? Right. And I think he's done a, a great deal of work because I think part of the, the reason that this conversation becomes difficult is because we've thought so much about the idea that we haven't thought about sort of the logistics of how would you do it? And then people would then counter the idea of reparations by saying, well, it's not feasible because there's no way that you could try to, you know, give us a number. And so I think those scholars have done quite a bit of work. And I think it's worth us taking a look at the work that has been done. Um, on this topic. I believe personally that that history strongly suggests that being Black in the United States has precluded you from some opportunities, from access to those opportunities. And, um, you know, it is a way of providing those who have been wronged and the descendants of those who have been wronged an opportunity to move forward that they deserve, you know, like, and, and to say that there's nothing, we know that history matters. We've just talked about intergenerational wealth. The past does matter. And, and I think in recognizing that, if you really want this country to be great, um, and I think we do, then you sort of provide those resources so that individuals, that Black people can move forward. You know, Rodney, I, I completely agree. Um, I just want to step back for a second on what we were previously talking about. And gentlemen, I would encourage, especially young Black men, to make sure they're taking a bet on their untimely death uh, with the life insurance piece. So I would advocate for all young black men that you should be spending more money on your life insurance than you do your car note. And I think from that, we, we have a chance, especially with what we see going on today, if we're going to die and we're going to die young, we might as well make someone pay for it. Going to the reparations piece, oh, I, I struggle with it, man, because, you know, I see 
in so many ways some of these systemic issues where folks have a chance to do the right thing and have an impact on our community and the, these institutions work against us. And so I just I just wonder how you reconcile, you know, sometimes institutions intentionally working against you. I think from what I read today, there are 800 COVID-19 cases in the Cook County Jail. Mm-hmm. So Rodney certainly is, you know, he's an economist. He certainly is a lot more the kid than uh, some of these issues than me. But I, I just worry that if we're waiting for any form of reparation, right, we could be waiting another 400 years, uh, yeah. which nobody in our community may exist or anything. But I would, I would encourage, you know, once again, especially young black men, to bet on your own time to death. It could change the life and trajectory of your family. And I don't think anyone's going to pay attention to massive young men dying and dying prematurely until we start costing the economy something for those deaths. When I think about uh, reparations, I don't think about, you know, something that's doable. And I'm wondering whether these economists that Rodney mentioned have thought about the impact that if we're going to get reparations, let's look at policies in terms of redlining. Let's admit that these things happen. It's happening now. And let's do something to address those barriers that's been preventing Black folks to fairly compete with everybody else. To me, that would be a start when you start talking about reparations. Let's just break down some of these barriers. And we got to acknowledge that they're there. And one of the problems is people aren't acknowledging acknowledging that they're there. Well, I think it's not a, you know, I think we have to make sure that we're not looking at it a zero-sum situation, though, that in essence, it's possible to do both. And I think the other side of recognizing that it may be a far point off, but it has to start somewhere. So maybe it is for our grandchildren or great-grandchildren, but if we don't start it, then it'll be for their great-grandchildren. And so we can do both. We can make sure that we focus on the inequities and inequalities of structural and systemic racism now, and also make sure that they recognize that there has been a pattern, a 401-year pattern that we need to to address and, and stamp out. Well, that's it for another edition of The Brothers Talk, and we thank each and every one of you for spending some time with us, and we look forward to sharing with you again next week. We want to thank our very special guest on this Blackonomics episode, Dr. Rodney Andrews of the University of Texas at Dallas, and Dr. Marcus Martin, founder and CEO of 2M Research, for providing us and you with more than a few gems of wisdom around what we should be preparing for and looking forward to as we ready ourselves for the other side of this pandemic as a community. Rodney and Marcus, you've given us much to chew on that we'll be working our way through for some time to come. And we can't wait to have you back with us again on a future talk, as we've only scratched the surface of this critical issue. Remember, you can always share your thoughts and comments as well as your question with us. Follow us on Twitter at The Brothers Talk, The Brothers Talk on Instagram, the Facebook group of the same name. And if you want to go long form with your comments, you can reach us at the email address thebrotherstalk at gmail.com. In parting, as always, we say let's do better today because that's really all we have.